Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. A few years ago, Sandy and I got finally, after about 28 years of marriage, to take a trip to Europe. And we did it like my friends did it when they were 18. We didn't check any luggage. We just each took a small backpack with the minimum, and we got a Eurail pass, and we hit 13 cities in 15 days. It was pretty exhausting, but it was uh, wonderful to hit a city, to run around it, to explore it, and then to move on. One of the cities was an enchanting little medieval city called Rotenburg ob der Tauber uh, in Germany. And you've probably not heard of it. It's a small city, but it's uh, maintained its ancient walls. It's been destroyed and rebuilt different times, but it was spared in World War II, and it's a delightful little city. Well... You know, in any sort of a tourist area, they have tour guides, and they had this guy that was giving free tours, and he got tips, and he was dressed up like an executioner, and he gave us this tour around the medieval city at night, and he told a story about the attack, an attack on the city during the Thirty Years' War after the Reformation, and it was a Protestant city, and it was being attacked by imperial troops, And he tells the story that they were holding their own with these huge walls, but then the guy inside the building who was in charge of the powder, I don't know if he was a smoker or what, but he accidentally set off the powder kegs and blew a hole in the wall. Now, by the way, I tried to look for that in history. I don't know that that really happened, but it was a very entertaining story (laughs) for the tourists who were there. But it stuck in my mind, this image of a city that could withstand an external threat, but then blew it up, blew itself up from the inside. That's what we have in the church in Pergamum. It was a church that was able to withstand external threats, but it was allowing itself to get blown up from within. As we've seen in these churches, they begin with an introduction of Jesus. Jesus presents himself as he writes to the angel, the messenger of the church. And we've seen up to this point that these these descriptions of Jesus come out of the image of Jesus, the the vision of Jesus that we find in chapter 1. And this is no different here today. Look at verse 12. 
And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now we should go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars, we saw that last week, uh, from his mouth, I'm sorry, we saw that two weeks ago in the church of Ephesus. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its full strength. Now, what we've also seen so far is each of these details that it pulls out from chapter 1 in the introduction of Jesus to the church has a specific reason. Do you remember in the church in Ephesus, he presented himself as the one who walks among the lampstands. Why? Because Ephesus was in danger of losing its lampstand. And then last week, we saw the church in Smyrna, the words of the first and last, the one who died and came to life. Why was that significant for the church in Smyrna? Because some of them were about to die. And we saw last week that the only ones who should be interested in knowing the one who has the keys of death and hell, who has died and come to life, are those who think they're going to die. And we saw that uh, that includes all of us, but in Smyrna it was a very urgent sort of concern. And so he identified himself as the one who had died and came to life and has power over death and hell. Now this week he identifies himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. That sounds sort of ominous, doesn't it? But when we think about a sword or any other weapon, it can be used in two different ways, can it? A sword can be used offensively to attack, and a sword can be used defensively to defend. And at this point, we don't know yet, we'll have to keep reading the letter to know how Jesus is going to use this sword, but we, if we keep reading Revelation, we find out in the rest of Revelation, whenever a sword appears, it's for attack. And so that should make us a little bit nervous at this point. However, however, the only other time outside of Revelation in the New Testament where it talks about a two-edged sword is in the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it may give us the clue to understanding what the focus is of this two-edged sword. It's on page 1104 in the Bibles that are available to you. And here it says... Verse 12, Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So here it, it is kind of aggressive. This sword is getting to the deepest part of our being, but what is the sword? It's the Word of God. And in this vision, where does Jesus have the sword? Where is it? It's in His mouth. And so the emphasis here looks like uh, looks like that Jesus is going to apply His Word to the church. And we'll see how He applies His Word to this church in Pergamum. Instead of saying, like He says in most of the letters, instead of saying, I know your works... He says that, I think, uh, five times to the churches. Here he says, I know where you dwell. Look at verse 13. That's how he begins the description of the church every time. I know. But he says, he doesn't say, I know your works. He says, I know where you live. I know where you dwell. So this is significant 
that he is pointing out something very difficult about where they lived, about where they dwelt. Pergamum had been the capital city of that province of the Roman Empire. So it was, if we looked at Ephesus, Ephesus was something like New York City. Um, and then maybe Smyrna was something like Philadelphia or Boston, trying to compete with New York City uh, along the coast. And then Pergamum, maybe something like Washington, D.C. So it wasn't as big, but it had the history of political influence. And uh, it had a temple, actually had a number of temples, but it had a temple to the divine emperor, because the Roman emperors had this pretense of being gods. And so they had a a temple dedicated to the divine emperor. They also had a temple dedicated to Asclepios the Savior. Asclepios the Savior was the serpent god of healing, and there were priests that engaged in healing rites. And then, in addition to that, on the highest point of the city, and actually you can see how the city is set up, there was a high point in the city, they had a god, I'm sorry, a temple to Zeus the Savior. And so they had a number of different temples there uh, to different entities, different supposed deities, but look how, how Jesus identifies this city. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, was he referring to the temple to Asclepios? Was he referring to the temple to to uh, the emperor? Was he referring to the temple to Zeus? Uh, or was he referring to all of them? We're not sure, but there are sufficient candidates here for being the throne of Satan. He says where Satan's throne is. And then he mentions that at the end of verse 13 again, where Satan dwells. So he's emphasizing to this church that they were in a very, very difficult place to be Christians. To their credit, to their credit, he says to them, you hold fast my name. You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. This is impressive, folks. They dwelt in this politically oriented, idolatrous city, and they held fast to the name of Christ. They did not deny their faith in Jesus Christ, even in this very difficult city, even when one of their own had been killed. We saw that in Smyrna, that some were about to be thrown into prison uh, on death row, and some were likely to be executed. We don't know what the situation is here about Antipas. We don't know anything else about Antipas, except that he was killed. We don't know if it was a judicial action. We don't know if it was mob violence. We don't know what happened here. But one of their own was killed. But they held fast. That's impressive, isn't it? If somebody walked in here and just took one of us out, specifically for being a Christian, how many of us would be here next week? Good question, right? That's how it was, though. They all showed up the next week. They were holding fast to the name of Jesus. Um, They were strong, that is to say, in resisting the external threat. They were strong in resisting the attacks on the church. And they were even taking their lives into their own hands by resisting this external threat threat, persecution. But then Jesus says, as he does in the case of most of the churches, he says, I have something against you. 
He says, I have a few things against you. And it boils down to two. It says, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So he says, the problem, the thing I have against you, is you are allowing people in your midst to hold views, to hold beliefs that are antithetical to their confession of faith in me. And he mentions the teaching of Balaam. Who was Balaam? We have to go back to the book of Numbers, and let me just summarize it for you. As Israel was coming up out of Egypt, and they were heading toward the promised land, uh, King Balak saw this horde coming his way, and he promised money to the prophet Balaam if Balaam would curse this people. And so Balaam goes. He has some adventures getting there with his donkey and so on, but he he goes and he gets there, and, and Balak tries to pay him to curse the people of Israel. And he blesses them. And Balak said, you don't understand. I, I, I hired you to curse them. And, and so he gives them another chance. And he blesses them again. And then Balak is getting quite upset and he gives them another opportunity and, and he blesses them again. And so God won't let this, this prophet curse the people. But then we find in chapter 25 of Numbers that the people did two things. They intermingled with the Moabite women, the Israelite men, with the Moabite women, and they ate sacrifices to their God. So they committed immorality, and they were engaged in pagan idolatrous worship. And then we don't find out until later, until chapter 31, that this was Balaam's idea. It looks like he said to Balak, okay, the Lord did not let me curse them like you wanted, but I got another idea. Let's try women. And it worked. And the the Israelite men mixed up with the Moabite women and then participating in their idolatrous worship. So it looks like what was going on here in Pergamum was something like this. That they were holding fast, confessing Jesus' name, not denying their faith, but at the same time, they were not being careful about their associations, that they were allowing themselves to participate in idolatrous sacrifices of some sort that was mixing them up in something in which they should not be involved. And also it looks like they were practicing sub-biblical sexual ethics. They were not holding to the teaching of Scripture on morality. Now, the Nicolaitans, we don't know who the Nicolaitans were. But I want you to notice the contrast between the way Ephesus dealt with the Nicolaitans and how Pergamum dealt with the Nicolaitans. Uh, If you look at verse 6 of chapter 2, Revelation, here he's talking to Ephesus, and he says, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So the Ephesians were very orthodox and they were clear about what was right and wrong. What were they lacking? Do you remember? Love. They were lacking love. But here we have the opposite situation. We have some who were holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So here's the, here's the contradiction. The contradiction in the life of Ephesus, they were holding good doctrine, but they weren't practicing love. And the contradiction at the heart of the, the church in Pergamum is that they were holding to the name of Jesus, and they were holding 
to false teaching. They were holding on to two incompatible, contradictory things. He says, I have this against you. And then we have the, the calls. We have the calls of Jesus. And by the way, this is really the situation all through Revelation. There are two opponents to the church in Revelation. Uh, the opponents to the church are persecution and seduction. And we find these two ways to attack the church. Persecution or seduction. So Smyrna was being persecuted. Pergamum was being seduced. We find this throughout the book of Revelation. And not only throughout the book of Revelation, we find this throughout church history. That these are two different ways to take the church down. Either by persecuting or by seducing. And um, here in the West, we really don't know what persecution is. Whether we'll know what persecution is sometime in the future, I don't know. Whether the Western church will be persecuted or not. But I wonder if it's worth persecuting a church that is so easily seduced. Because in the West, we have been easily seduced. We've been easily seduced by politicians on the right and on the left. We've been easily seduced by whatever new idea, whatever intellectual fad comes down through the academy. Uh, we've been seduced by, by the, the morals that are around us, and we have lowered ourselves to the standard of those around us. We have been seduced by cultural fads, and we've gone all in, sometimes when the fads have even moved on, and we're the ones that are still jumping into them. And so I don't know whether, whether there will ever be persecution, but I, I think we can identify probably more with Pergamum than we could with Smyrna, because historically we have been so easily seduced. And so what is the call to Pergamum? Jesus' call to Pergamum. What is Jesus' call to us as well? In verse 16, there you have it. What's it say? Therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. And what is repentance? It is turning from sin, from error, to God in faith. Therefore, repent. And now we find out about that sword. We find out why the sharp sword, double-edged sword in his mouth. He says, if not, that is, if you don't repent, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So we find that this was for the attack. What was Jesus going to do if they did not repent? He was going to, by his word... He was going to go to those who were in error in what they believed or in error in what they practiced. And he was going to deal with them through his word. And what he's basically saying to the churches, he's basically saying is, you discipline yourselves, and if you don't discipline yourselves, I will do it. But he's first calling on them to do it. But look at what he says here. It's interesting, the change in pronouns. He says, therefore, repent. And this is an an imperative, it's a command, and it's in second person plural. So he's saying to all of the people, all of the members of the church, all of you all, repent. And he says, if not, I will come to you all soon and war against them. Interesting. So he's not going after the whole church. He's saying, I will come to all of you and I will deal with 
them. Who are the them? Who are the they? They are the ones who were holding to the teaching of Balaam. They are the ones who were holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So this is interesting. What is it saying? It's saying, Jesus is saying here, all of you are responsible here to deal with the beliefs and the behavior of some. Of some. So you as a body must discipline yourselves, or if not, I will do it for you. Tragically, tragically, church discipline has disappeared for many churches. There are many churches that don't practice church discipline. Kind of anything goes. Uh, so the result of that is that many who hold to the name of Jesus in what they confess with their mouths are also holding to erroneous ideas and holding to practices that are antithetical to the Christian faith. And that's what happens when there is no discipline. When the church does not discipline, it's interesting and curious that we expect every other organization, group, and institution to practice self-discipline, don't we? But then when the church practices it, we say, oh, that's so unloving. Oh, that's so judgmental. That's so unkind. But we don't say that about the family, do we? When we see a child who is not being disciplined by his or her parents, we say, how cruel is that to let the child go his or her own way? Or if we see a congressman acting poorly, taking bribes to, uh, to get, uh, uh, give contracts to his buddies, we say, Congress, do something about that. Because not only is this man doing damage to his district, he's doing damage to the reputation of the whole Congress act. If we see a, a sports team, uh, the Dolphins just started um, summer camp. And let's say a quarterback who wants to be the starting quarterback says, well, it's kind of hot, July and August. I'm not going to show up for summer camp. That's pretty miserable. I'll come in later. Oh, but I want to be the starting quarterback. Right? We, I don't know if we're Dolphin fans here or not. Who? Some are. Okay. Long-suffering Dolphin fans, right? Right? We would say, come on, coach. Do something about this guy. He's hurting the whole team. He's hurting the whole team. And he's hurting himself. Come on. Uh, the, the Rotary Club, the Fraternal Order of Police, uh, uh, Florida Atlantic University, we expect every organization to practice discipline of its members. Why? For the benefit of the member and for the benefit of the organization. But then somehow, when churches practice what we're supposed to practice, if we discipline ourselves, somehow we're accused of being unkind or bigoted or harsh or judgmental. There's a document written in the 1640s. Uh, it's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's a document that has influenced particularly Presbyterian churches. And it talks about five reasons for church discipline. Five reasons. It names these. It says... Church discipline is necessary for, this is the first one, we always need to remember this, for reclaiming and gaining fellow Christians. So, what's loving? If, if a fellow Christian is going astray to his or her own detriment and to the detriment of the church, what is loving? To let him go? To let her go? 
or to go after him, to go after her and try to bring him or her back. That's the loving option. That's the first purpose of discipline. And then the second is for deterring others. For deterring others. So others are observing and saying, oh, so that's how Christians believe. That's how Christians act. Well, I guess that's okay. But when the church says, no, it's not okay, this is not what we practice, this is not what we believe, it's to deter others. It talks about purging the leaven. Purging the leaven which might infect the whole lump. The same idea that if some begin to practice this, these Balaamites and these Nicolaitans, if they're, they're left to their own and nobody says anything to them, that the church in Pergamum could become the church of Balaam and the church of the Nicolaitans. For vindicating the honor of Christ. Vindicating the honor of Christ. You know, when I go out and share the gospel, I've told you this before, when I go out and talk to people about the gospel, the objections I find, at least here in our area, maybe if I were in a a different sort of atmosphere, maybe a university city or something like that, a different place, the objections would be different, but the objections I find here are not intellectual objections about the truth or the falsity of the teaching. The objections I hear are to the behavior of Christians. And they, they say, yes, I was in a church, but this happened. And I knew this pastor, but he did this. Or I was in this situation, and they treated me like this. The objections are that Christians are not acting like Christians. And so whose name is, is dragged down? Christ's name is dragged down. So for the vindication of the honor of Christ is discipline. And then it also says, the last one, is averting the wrath of God, which might justly fall on the church. And we've seen so far that that's not theoretical, is it? We saw how Jesus said to Ephesus, I will take your lampstand away. And here we see in Pergamum, he says, I will come to you and I will, I will use the sword of my mouth to deal with you. You know, rather than being a put-off church discipline, it really should be a drawing card. Uh, I have not, thankfully, had to apply to many churches to be their pastor. I've always started churches. and uh, But I have. In coming back to the States, I was in conversation with some churches. And one of the questions that I had for them was, how do you do discipline in your church? Because I want to know if it's a healthy group. I want to know if they take the Word of God seriously. I want to know if they really love each other enough to hold each other accountable. And when I tell people about our church, I happily say, I am a pastor and I am under authority. That is to say, I can't just go off the rails and do whatever I want without somebody, my brothers in the faith and other elders and pastors coming to me and saying, Larry... You say you're holding to the name of Christ and yet you're holding to this idea or you're practicing this. So it's good news for you that your pastor is under authority and subject to discipline if he goes rogue. That's protection for you. But it's also protection for you if you're in a church, if you're a member of a church that it practices discipline. Because what does discipline say? We love you so much that we are not going to allow you to destroy yourself by false belief or false practice without putting up a fight for your soul. That's what church discipline says. You see, 
It's saying, we love you, and we are willing to get involved in the messy things of your life, because we have messy things in our life as well, and we want to help you, even as in due time you will help us to go on and really to live out this profession of holding to Jesus Christ. There's a, a call here, and it's in all the letters. It's in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we have already noticed that although the message is to the churches, this call is individual. And so we can't beg off and say, well, that's a, a message to the church, and well, the church will deal with it. Who's the church? He's saying, to the one. To the one who hears, maybe not everybody's going to hear in Pergamum what he's saying to the churches, but to the one who hears, to the two who hear, to the three who hear, let those rise up, let those respond to the word that Jesus is preaching to them. And then he says, as in all the the letters, he gives a promise to the conqueror. The conqueror, to the one who does hear what the Spirit says, what Jesus says, to the one who does believe and go on believing, to the one who continues in faith and repentance, to the conqueror. And here there's a double promise. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now so far we've seen... In Ephesus, we saw that the the promise to the conqueror was access to the tree of life, eternal life. We saw last week as well, uh, we saw that there was a promise that had to do with life. To the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death, which is the lake of fire. So, So freedom from condemnation. And now we see here the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name. This is getting a bit harder to interpret. The first two were a bit easy because we have explanation of those symbols. But here, the hidden manna, what is that? There was a Jewish legend uh, about the manna. If you recall in the Old Testament, they took a jar of the manna and they put it in the, the temple. And there was this legend in Judaism that when the temple was destroyed, that Jeremiah took the jar and he hid it, but when Messiah comes... He will bring the manna with him again. Now, I don't know if that's an image that's being used here. Uh, Probably not likely. But what we can say for certain is, is that Jesus used this image of manna to point to himself. If you go back to John chapter 6, it's on page 988 of the Bibles that are available to you. John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus said this. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they said to Him, Then what sign do you do, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then if you jump down to verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. 
This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for, I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So we find, again, what's the emphasis? The emphasis in Ephesus was on the tree of life. We find in Smyrna, the emphasis was on escaping the second death, that is eternal life. And now we find that we get a part in the manna. What manna? Jesus Himself. That we eat of Him, that is, believe on Him, He says, we will be satisfied and we will live forever. And He says, how did your fathers live in the wilderness those 40 years? How did they survive? Bread came down from heaven. And now He says, how are you going to survive? How are you going to survive forever? Bread came down from heaven. The sun came down from heaven. He came one of us and gave His life. And He says, what is that that's given for the world? He says, it's My flesh. It's My body. Now, they were having trouble getting the image, the metaphor here, but He's saying, He's gesturing at the fact that He was about to give His flesh. He was about to give His body, that His body was about to be broken on the cross. And by giving His body for the life of the world, He gives eternal life to all who will believe in Him. He also indicates that we'll have satisfaction, doesn't He? He says, For the bread of of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said, I am the bread. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. What's that mean? Be satisfied. And we as humans have trouble being satisfied, don't we? All the time. We have trouble being satisfied. Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones sang about that, didn't they, right? Right, you can't get no what? Satisfaction. You can't get no satisfaction, right? And they were singing about the human condition, weren't they? They were right on. That, that's one of our big problems in the world, which is why we do so many things in life, because we're trying to get satisfaction. We're trying to get contentment. And what does Jesus say? You want to satisfy that thirst that you have, that, 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 that aching thirst in your soul, that, that hunger that gnaws at you from within? Do you, want to, do you want to have satisfaction for that? Then feed on me by faith. I will give you satisfaction. That's the first image. Now, the second one's a bit harder. It's a white stone, and this white stone has a new name on it, and no one knows except the one who receives it. The difficulty is that white stones were used for a number of different reasons in the ancient world in this time. They were used to signify acquittal in a law case. In a law case, there is either acquittal or condemnation. There is either innocent or guilty. And sometimes they would use a white stone to signify innocent, not guilty. They would use a black stone to signify guilty, condemned. That's a possibility. Also, it was used as a ticket of admission to a banquet, a white stone. Also, they were used honorable discharge from gladiatorial combat. They were also used as admission to the worship of Asclepios, the serpent uh, god of healing. And they were also used as magical charms. And as magical charms, they often had names of gods on them. So there are a number of different candidates here for what the reference is. I tend to think, I tend to think that the first or the second acquittal in a law case, uh, the, the not guilty verdict, 
That would certainly be true, as Paul said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's a possible reference, but I tend to think that probably the second is the the most solid, as a ticket of admission to a banquet. What was the problem? What was the problem of the, uh, the, the believers in Pergamum? They were going to what kind of banquets? They were going to idolatrous banquets, to pagan festivals. They were going to banquets, but they were going to the wrong banquets. And then Jesus says, I will give you the food you need. I will give you the hidden manna. I will give you a new banquet, and I will give you the ticket of admission as well. Admitted to the banquet, where your thirst can be quenched, where your hunger can be satisfied, where you can can find contentment and have all of you need all you need and have life as well. The emphasis here, though, is probably not on the whiteness of the stone, but on the name that's on the stone. But here, once again, it's kind of uh, curious, isn't it? It says, a name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And the scholars are divided here, whether it is the name of Jesus or it's the new name of the believer. That's, those are the two options. The name of Jesus that he has, that we have been named with the name of Jesus and we belong to him, that's a possibility, but then it's a little curious about why no one else knows it. So I tend to think that it's probably the new name of the believer, and we see that sometimes. You are Simon, but I'm going to call you Peter. There's this renaming of people sometimes in Scripture to give them a new identity, uh, and that is probably the reference here. I'm going to, to give you a, a, a new, a new uh, ticket of admission. And on that new ticket of admission, it has your, your new identity written. Paul talked about that, didn't he? He said, if anyone is in Christ, literally, there is a new creation. The old things have passed away. The new has come. Anybody here really messed up in your life? and said, I'd like a do-over. I'd like, I'd like to be able to start over. I'd like to be able to, to leave this in the past, and I'd like to be a different person. Anybody, anybody ever felt like that? I certainly have. And what's he saying here? If you're in Christ, you have this new identity, new creation, the old things passed away, and the new has come. Would you like to be a new person? Would you have to, like to have access to the feast? Would you like to be admitted to the, the manna that really satisfies, that really gives you contentment in life? Which says that's what you get if you're a conqueror. And how do we conquer? We conquer by faith. That's the invitation. And Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, she who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for Jesus who came down and gave His flesh for the life of the the world. And I pray for all of us here that we would have that life in Jesus, that we would believe on Him and Him alone, that we might have the old taken away, 
that we might have that new identity, that we might have access to that hidden manna, which is Christ Himself, so that we might live. And I pray for our church. Certainly in our church, we will go astray. There will be those among us that go astray, and all of us, to one degree or another, will go astray. And I pray for our church that we would always be such a deeply loving church that we would be willing to get involved in the messiness of each other's lives so that we might not destroy ourselves by sinning. I pray, O God, that that we would give heed to what the Spirit is saying to the church in Pergamum and what the Spirit is saying to the church, Florida Coast Church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.